So this morning's scripture, if you have your Bibles, you can open up the book of Judges. It's towards the beginning of your Bible, right after what we call the Torah, the uh, first five books. Then there's Joshua and then Judges. And we'll be reading from chapter 6, starting in verse 11. I'll give you just a minute to find it. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be on the screens behind me. Hear now the word of the Lord. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me. My Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father Almighty, we come before you in in this space and time, in the gift of this morning, as the community gathers together and we meet as sisters and brothers. Lord, we gather around your word. And we are honored that you would see fit to reveal yourself to us through it. And so I pray, Almighty God, that you would be with us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. That you would open our eyes that we could see, our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word. Our hearts that we would feel its power. Then in response, I pray, O God, that you would open our hands that we would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Gideon is such a fascinating character in Scripture, and we arrive at this story of Gideon and might be surprised because when we think about Gideon, maybe we think about the fleece and the testing of God and the dew on the fleece but not on the ground and the dew on the ground but not on the fleece. And that's a fantastic story about that intimacy and God's provision to offer a sign to a servant. And we might think about Gideon, we think of the, we think of the 32,000 in his army and we think about the way in which God whittled the army down to, near, uh, to merely 300 in order to make sure that God would receive glory, not the Israelite people and not Gideon. 
Or maybe we think about the, the actual battle where the 300 are up against 135,000 soldiers and, and they gather around the army encamped at night and they blow trumpets and break glass jars and they shout aloud that this is the Lord's fight. And yet, that's not where we are today. We're in a, in a much less commonly read passage of scripture. This is the call of Gideon. And it comes at a moment where Gideon is absolutely exposed. What, what, what does that mean? What does it mean for, for you or for me to have that moment in life or that period of life where we feel or are exposed? I grew up as a preacher's kid. Uh, my dad was a preacher before I was born. I know many uh, kids have have dads or moms who were preachers uh, that were second career. My dad was a, a preacher, and, and that's all I ever knew, which meant I lived life under a microscope. I mean, the, the church has been, become a little bit more generous to preacher's kids in the way that the church interacts with preacher's kids, but when I was growing up, I felt like eyes were always on me. Like if I did something wrong, Everyone paid attention. And if I did something right, oh, that's what should be because that's the preacher's kid. Like that was the environment I felt I lived in. I remember one time, just real quick, I didn't plan to tell the story, but I was walking home from school and I picked up a mushroom and, uh, and I threw it at a car that drove by. And by the time I got home, my dad was waiting there for me, telling me that he knew that I had thrown a mushroom at a car. That's the kind of insanity that I felt my life was, uh, was being exposed for the world to see. But then in 1993, whenever I was in junior high school, my mom and my dad got divorced. And that was a whole different uh, framework of exposure for me because now uh, I felt as though all of the troubles of my home life, those things that no one saw because all they saw was the perfect projection that the world uh, uh, had on display for them from the preacher and the preacher's family was now there for everyone to see or to assume or to infer. And so I carried great shame. I was ashamed. I was ashamed of of my family, I was ashamed of my father and my mother, and I was, and I carried that shame in this exposed way, feeling like all eyes were on me. But you know what's interesting that I did this week that I don't know if I had done before? I asked the question, what was that time of exposure like for my dad, the preacher, when he and my mom got divorced? And as I sat with that, I, I didn't call him, I didn't ask him, I didn't uh, seek his, his input. I just sat with, because I'm a preacher, what would it be like if I lived through that? And I could tell you that I would have questions of purpose, questions of calling, questions of usefulness. God, do you actually have something for me to do, or am I damaged goods? Am I immaterial? Where is my value any longer? 
And that feeling itself is, is actually a feeling that I think connects deeply to where we find Gideon at this point, this juncture in the story. The call of Gideon is so interesting. It comes historically after a beautiful season in the people of Israel's life. Deborah was judge, and Deborah was maybe the greatest judge in all of Israelite history. And at the end of her leadership, her reign, there were 40 years of peace, of prosperity, of fruitfulness and favor from the Lord. It's, it's magnificent to see the impact good leadership has. But as soon as she dies, and as soon as the people of Israel uh, begin to turn their hearts away from God, they, they, they begin to worship idols and turn their hearts from God, then begins seven years. At the beginning of chapter 6, it says seven years, then they were handed to the into the hands of the Midianites because they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were handed into, uh, handed over to the people of the Midianites. And here's what that looked like. The Midianites were from the east, and, and they would raid the Israelite people. They would come across the river, and they would enter into the land, and whatever had been harvested, whatever season it was, they would pillage it, and they would devastate the land. They would, they would come as the grapes were being ready to be harvested, and they would, they would devour the land. They would come as the wheat, wheat was being ready to be harvested, and they would devour the land over and over again. This was a part of what the people of Israel were experiencing. Despair, depression, defeat, ruin. It actually, in Scripture, uses that word ruin. The Israelite people were ruined. So we, we have this season of devoured land, of ruin, and the people of God, it says, began to cry out to the Lord. In verse 7, the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, and the Lord sent a prophet, and the prophet testified to the Lord's faithfulness. The prophet shared with the people a reminder of how God led them out of Egypt and into the promised land, and how God was always faithful. And in some ways, you could imagine that the prophet's role was to return their eyes to the king because they had drifted away after Deborah and they needed to return to the Lord. But in the midst of this crying out to the Lord, there's a duplicitous reality to the practice of the, Israelites, of the Israelite people. I'm going to jump forward in this story for just a minute because I believe it's a, a, a revelation to where we find ourselves in the context of this initial call. After the call of Gideon, one of the very first things that Gideon is commissioned to do by the Lord is to tear down his father's altar to Baal, which is, which is an idolatrous god, and to tear down the Asherah pole, which is a place of worship against God. So in his own home, in his own family, as they're crying out to the Lord, they're also worshiping Baal. They're crying out to God, but with their hearts, they're still seeking after idols. Does that sound like anyone we know? Maybe that got too personal for us. Haven't we had seasons of our lives where we've experienced trauma, challenge, where we have cried out to the Lord, but then our lives continued to operate as though God was not the Lord. We, we, we worshipped idols, 
rather than worshiping the Lord even as we sought after him. That was the state of the cries of the people. And yet, and yet, even in the midst of this dissonant cry, the Lord still heard. The Lord still remembered his people. The Lord was still faithful. The Lord still engaged with his people. How generous is God? How generous is God when our cries are, 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 are broken pieces? How generous is God when our cries uh, are actually uh, uh, diverting our attention from, uh, are diverted by our attention of other things? And yet God is generous and hears those cries. It is so Magnificent. But here's where we find ourselves. Seven years of despair, of desolation, the people crying out to God while they're also worshiping idols. And then we arrive at the scene where our, uh, our new judge, our heroic figure, Gideon, is seen. It's at the end of verse 11, if you still have your Bibles. It says, Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. And because we neither uh, own a winery nor do we own a wheat field, we gloss over that and don't realize how absolutely ridiculous that line is. Let, let, me, let me rephrase it and see if you could get this. So Gideon was ordering a hamburger from Cain's. Right? Or... or or Gideon went to get his car repaired from um, a movie theater. Like, it's absurd. It doesn't make sense. These two things don't go together. And it's not, it's, it's not just the fact that it's two different, um, uh, two different crops. The way in which you process the crops is absolutely contrary. So here's what you do in a wine press. You dig out a earthen hole, or that's how they did it uh, in Israel. They dig out an earthen hole below the ground so that they could press grapes within it. And if you're threshing wheat, you have a large stone above the ground so that the wind can blow off naturally the chaff as you are separating the wheat from the chaff. These are two absolutely distinctive processes that do not go together in any way, shape, or form. And here we find Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. So what does that tell us about Gideon? Well, the first thing it could tell us is that Gideon was desperate. Gideon was absolutely desperate to, to be able to hold some part of what his crop had produced for his family. He had been ruined by the Midianites as they pillaged and plundered year after year, season after season. And here he brings in just a small portion of the wheat he probably used to produce. And he is absolutely desperate to be able to have something to feed his family. Makes absolute sense. So rather than being out exposed in nature in a, in a, on a stone above ground where other people could see him, including the Midianites, as they would approach and take his wheat, he goes down in a hole to shrink away so that no one would see. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's desperate. What else can it tell us about Gideon? Gideon is afraid. Gideon's 
afraid. He's looking for safety and security because the devastation uh, that he has experienced. And he knows that if he was seen to be withholding the plunder from the plunderer, then he could be killed. So he's going to shrink away, hide away, so that he would not be exposed to the enemy. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. He is devastated, desperate, and afraid. And the, the word comes to Midian. This is such an interesting word that seems absolutely incongruent with the scene that we are in. But the, the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon in that state. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Uh, first of all, let's stick with the mighty warrior for a minute. He doesn't look like a mighty warrior in this moment. Uh, no way, shape, or form does he look like a mighty warrior. There's nothing bold about him. There's nothing strong about him. There's nothing uh, that says that he could do battle. Mighty warrior. I, I wonder... I wonder what that does for you and me. What don't you look like? What don't you feel like? What use are you not able to accomplish? And then the Lord speaking over you, the, the truth of who you are and what you're able to accomplish that you can't perceive or imagine. How beautiful is that, that the word of the Lord comes to Gideon in a state where it makes no sense, and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior, the, the Lord is with you. Uh, it, it's it's amazing because Gideon's response is, you know, where have you been? What have you been doing, God? Like, uh, we've been here devastated. Everybody talks about, oh, when, when God led us out of Egypt. But I'm not in Egypt. I'm here, and I'm getting beat up all the time. Why are you abandoning us? And, and then the, Lord says, the Lord's angel says, go in the strength you have. And then we're reminded yet again of why mighty warrior makes no sense for Gideon. Because Gideon says it himself. He honestly reflects on where he is and what his position is. He says, I am from Manasseh and I'm the weakest in Manasseh, and even in my family, I am the least in my family. So let me frame that up. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and when they came into the promised land, the land was divided into those 12 regions. Manasseh was one of those tribes, and so he is from Manasseh, which is not the prominent tribe. It is a lesser tribe, and then in that, his family position in Manasseh is one of the weakest in Manasseh, and then in his family, he is the least in his family. So he's the lesser of the least of the least. He's nobody from nowhere, capable of doing nothing. That's what he says to the angel of the Lord who calls him the mighty warrior. Go in the strength you have. I have no strength. Go in the strength you have. I have no capacity. Go in the strength you have. I'm useless, he says to the Lord. 
you got the wrong guy. And it's really striking that Gideon is missing the point. He's not hearing the full word from the Lord. You remember what the Lord's angel said? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he is fixated and stuck on mighty warrior and acknowledging that he is not capable of living up to that title. But what is the complete picture? The whole picture here is the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. You see, in God's work, social position does not matter. In God's uh, economy, your capacity on your own does not matter. Your gifts in and of themselves do not matter. It's not about what you bring to the table, but but it is about what God brings to the table in you. You are able to to accomplish infinitely more, immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine, not because of what you are capable of doing, but because of what God is capable of doing in you. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Your whole identity can be absolutely redirected, redeployed, all because God says so and God makes it so in you. Do you have anxiety and you don't think that you could communicate to other people effectively? Get ready. God's going to say, the Lord is with you, mighty communicator. What are you able to do on your own? Dismiss that. What is God wanting to do in and through you? That's the question. I love how this passage turns at the very end. God uh, authorizes Gideon, deploys Gideon through the angel of the Lord. And it reminds us of, of how powerful this invitation is. The Lord reiterates in verse 16 what he began with. The Lord answered, I will be with you. It's as though the Lord sees Gideon and understands Gideon and understands that Gideon is missing the point. That Gideon is so fixated on his own shortcomings that he doesn't see how God could use him. And maybe we put ourselves in that position all too often. I remember watching my dad in ministry as I was in junior high and as I was in high school and then on through college. And I imagine that time in his ministry where he felt useless, purposeless, because he had experienced great shame and loss. He had been ruined. And I watched him in that season of his ministry Be used by the Lord, deployed by the Lord to meet with people in the midst of their pain and brokenness and their devastation. And I saw lives transformed and healed for the glory of God. 
his most fruitful ministry continued on after he was completely vulnerable and exposed. You might be sitting here today feeling useless, powerless, empty. And the Lord speaks over you. I have purpose for you. I'm inviting you. I'm sending you. I'm authorizing you for the work of the kingdom. And I will be with you. You don't go alone. You're not empty or void. But rather, I am encouraging you all along the way. Sisters and brothers, it's amazing what God can do through you. Just look at the rest of Gideon's stories. All that we see and all that we hear more commonly about Gideon, but let it, let it be a reminder to you that it all began when a man was threshing wheat in a wine press, absolutely ruined. God picked him up and sent him out for his glory. Let's be so used for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, we are reminded of your, of your favor and of your goodness, the ways in which you continue to move amongst us and create space for us to be your vessels in the world. Lord, uh, I don't know how, uh, how it is that you see fit to use fools like us, and yet you do. And yet you do, you, you call us, you equip us, you send us. And so, Father, I pray, I pray over this church, I pray over your people, I pray over my sisters and brothers that gather here today. Lord, use them, deploy them, be with them, be in them. All for your glory, all for your honor, all for your praise. Lord, as we continue in worship and we enter into this time of offering, I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would bless the, these gifts. All that is given would be for your honor, Lord, that, that what we've received is, is merely a portion of, uh, of the, the bounty that you've poured out upon us. And, Lord, we ask that you would, that you would receive these humble gifts in return. We offer them back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.